This is Paul Adamson, and I'm in conversation with Alex Barker. Alex Barker is the Brussels Bureau Chief of the Financial Times. Alex, I think it's fair to say you were the first uh, mainstream journalist to, to write about the, the, the divorce bill or the exit charge of the, for the UK if it wants to leave the European Union in a couple of years' time. And subsequently, you wrote a, a much lengthier paper for the think tank Centre for European Reform, the 60 billion Brexit bill. So let's start with how this figure has arrived at. What are the, the main components of the 60 billion euros that UK may have to pay the rest of the European Union? Sure. And, and before we do so, it's probably worth remembering that this didn't come up at all uh, in the referendum campaign, uh, as I remember. It was some obscure references to kind of pension costs that might go on and so forth, but the kind of sums involved and what a kind of central part of the Brexit negotiation this would become was never really envisaged by government otherwise, and it took many months to kind of slowly emerge. And what you have really uh, is a an overhang of financial commitments uh, that the EU entered into, uh, thinking Britain would pay its share, which it is now calling on Britain uh, to honour, uh, even after it's left. And in there, you've got three main bits. One uh, covers contracts, what they call commitments in the jargon, right. uh, that are entered into in an annual budget round uh, that haven't been paid yet. So uh, there's usually a big gap between commitments and payments, um, and it's at about 240 billion, right. roughly, at the time uh, that Britain will be leaving in kind of end of 2018. And what share of that would Britain be eligible well, for? Well, I mean, that's an open question as well. <laughs> Do you, you can look at the, the, the kind of traditional um, share of contributions that the UK would make, and it's somewhere, you know, 12% if you include the rebate, up to maybe 14%, depending on the calculations you're using. If you're just looking at the share of kind of national income, uh, that's about 15%. So, I mean, they'll argue about that for a long time. It makes quite a big difference. Um, but you've got that 240 billion bill of contracts that they've said, you know, let's build this bridge or this road and uh, in Poland or, or Slovakia or France or Italy. And the payment for that would come up in 2020, say, after Britain's left. And they would say, look, you, you've got to make good on this. You signed off on, uh, on the commitment and you've got to make good on the payment. Uh, the second part uh, is more contentious, and that covers um, commitments to spend money in the future uh, in Poland uh, as part of cohesion policy, structural funds, right. um, that haven't been turned into contracts yet or commitments, but will be after Britain leaves. Okay. But they're saying, look, Britain, you, you signed up to this envelope of money for cohesion funds for Poland and so forth. We would have never entered these kind of legally binding commitments if we thought you weren't involved at this level, and you've got to make good on this. If, 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 if Britain's not paying, then we've either cut, cut, got to cut the funding, Poland and net recipient countries will hate that, or um, uh, net contributor countries like Germany and Netherlands, Denmark, uh, have to stump up more cash. And we're not willing to do that. You've got to make good on your commitments. And thirdly, you've got much longer uh, kind of financial, longer term financial obligations, like pension promises to EU officials. Not just UK, Euro Eurocrats, but for the rest of Europe as well, right? 
Uh, yeah. French commitments. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, this is all EU officials, so it's not yeah. just British. Yeah. Uh, it's about 60 billion um, liability in total. It's quite a generous... Because aren't funded. No, but... I mean, um, EU officials are supposed to put uh, cover a third of the costs uh, of the pension uh, payments uh, it, with a contribution they make in their salary. Right. It doesn't actually come up to a third, but they, 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 <laughs> they, it's a very generous scheme and it's got a big liability and the member states guarantee it. And right. they would say, look, Britain, you've got to cover 12% of this. Um, and then you've got other bits and pieces, promises to take part in, in um, certain capital projects, um, clean up costs for nuclear um, uh, research sites in Italy. I mean, there's all sorts of things in there. And these are all liabilities of the union. And what they're saying is, look, legally, morally, politically, more importantly, uh, Britain, you need to pay your share. And you, you can end up with different numbers as a total, depending on what cutoff date you use, how you define a commitment, um, how you treat the assets of the union, mm. um, uh, what share you take, whether there's a transition, all of these things go factor into a, 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 a into that equation and you can end up with a range between you know I mean the Brits will say some Brits will say zero uh, um, up to more than 60 billion 70 80 billion you, you can hear from some folks so it's it's, it's it's there's all to play for well as you say in your paper the longer paper uh, the CR uh, think tank paper that it's it's curious because of the great scheme of things we we know now that the EU budget represents about one percent of EU GDP, uh, just under two percent of public spending by member states, and the, so the amounts involved in those in relative terms aren't that enormous. Even though in the popular mind, certainly in the UK, in the referendum, it seems like a much bigger figure thanks to some of the claims made by the the campaigns. Having said that, you also say that maybe there's the scope for, even though it will be very con con contentious and controversial discussion, very heated, there is maybe scope to find some kind of arrangement. Uh, are, you, are you relatively optimistic there will be some, some, some way, some not necessarily a fudge, but some kind of way forward, or are you, are you rather pessimistic? Well, look, I mean, it looks like a big sum uh, because you're bringing together all these uh, financial obligations in one big package. And actually, this, this is spread over 10 years uh, when you look and you're, you're, you're bringing all that forward to the year that Britain leaves. So actually, if you spread it out again, uh, it's all economically relatively insignificant uh, in terms of the public finances and so forth. And there's, there's room uh, to, to, to do a deal. The, the trouble with this isn't that Britain can't afford it or that the, the EU can't afford it. It, it. It's the politics around how it's presented and what that payment will, in return, uh, reflect in, in, in an overall deal. What, what's, what's the sweetener going to be for the UK, ultimately? Uh, and they would say, look, we're not going to just say, oh, we'll pay all this money up front without knowing what kind of relationship and how deep a relationship we're going to have in the future. And so you can see the money as being not just, you know, to a deal, ultimately, between the EU and the UK, uh, and at the same time, the dynamite that could blow up the whole thing. Because if, if the politics turns against uh, a deal in the UK, uh, those pushing uh, for a kind of cleaner break 
uh, with the EU will use the money as one of their big weapons. Okay, and let's be clear about something. It's still not totally clear in my mind. I think Michel Barnier, the European Commission and the Commission's chief negotiator, has said that you know the budget, the budget bill, the exit charge, you call it, uh, will be a, a significant part of the negotiation under Article 50, um, and and things like discussions of trade deals or whatever uh, will not be part of his of his mandate per se. Obviously, there'll be dis there'll be attempts to try and discuss the future relationship and transitional. Arrangements obviously is part of that process, but his focus, if I'm not mistaken, is very much on these kind of issues we're talking about, the, the budget liabilities of the United Kingdom. Is that correct? Um, and therefore, it will dominate the discussion for the next few months. Yeah, I mean, the, the first stage, the first phase of this is about the divorce, and the divorce uh, has two crunchy kind of policy elements. One is people. Who, who, who are left on the, I mean, I wouldn't say the wrong side of the border, but, you know, migrants uh, who, uh, who exercise rights and ended up on the wrong side of uh, administrative line. Right. And the second one is the money and, uh, and how those obligations are recognised uh, and, and calculated. Now, um, they, they haven't gone for what would be the hardest approach, which is to say, look, we're going to work out the bill and we're going to get you to say, Britain, uh, that you're going to honour this before we talk about anything else. But what they are going to do is say, right, we've got to decide on a methodology. We've got to decide what an obligation is, what a commitment is, what the, the, the numbers we're using. Uh, and ultimately, the 27 need to be satisfied that the Brits are going to pay somewhere in the region of what they need in terms of their budget gap. Right. Um, now, it might not have a number at the end of... It won't have a number at the end of that first phase, say the end of the year, but... Uh, but you're going to have a sense of, you know, whether this is 20 to 30 or 30 to 40 or, or 0 to 10. Um, and so the politics, in a way, will maybe just as difficult as actually if you were, you know, um, signing up to a number in the end. And, it's, and the budget, if I'm not mistaken, is one of those few areas where whether you're a net beneficiary or a uh, net contributor, you basically have the same objective. It's not to be, you know, not to not to suffer financially as a consequence of the UK departure. So, this is one area where the the, 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 the discipline, solidarity, if you want to call it, of the E27 is is very pronounced. Oh yeah, I mean, the, the, there is one goal, and that's making the Brits pay. <laughs> I mean, there, there there's um, and the Germans are, are extremely reluctant to uh, to top up uh, any gap. Uh, and it would, if there was a budget crunch, it's not just the money they lose out on, but they're entering uh, an extremely torturous, uh, difficult discussion between East and West about how that kind of grand bargain that they've had over the last 20 years is going to continue in the future around structural funds, cohesion spending, solidarity, you know, and you can see the... Germany starting to think, well, you know, we're offering all this financial solidarity. Uh, where's uh, where, where, is that going to be matched by uh, Poland and other Eastern European countries on our priorities like migration and, right. and other areas? So that that discussion uh, you wouldn't want accelerated uh, on the EU twenty seven side. You want to probably enter into that in a more gentle way. When you say a gentle way, but you know, it's the way you describe it, it gives the impression to me at least that the UK is in a pretty weak bargaining position when it comes to budget liability. They really can't, they may complain about it, they may be having their feet held to the fire by some of the, the popular media back in the UK, but at the end of the day, they are, they are in, on, on weak ground. Money is one of their uh, biggest points of leverage, actually, okay. as well. Um, you've got to think, I mean, you're, you're right to say that there, there's no way if Britain. Uh, 
makes no financial contribution, it's almost impossible to imagine a serious uh, and ambitious uh, trade relationship uh, going on in the future. Because if you can't sort out your past commitments, what hope is there for your future arrangements? Um, the leverage comes from the fact that Germany doesn't need the money, but uh, they all want to avoid this budget gap in the short term. And there the UK has you know, some flexibility to uh, cover um, what's a politically kind of um, uh, uncomfortable uh, gap for them with that long-term budget. And so you know, the, the, the MF, uh, the multi-annual financial framework, which is the long-term budget of the yeah. EU, was supposed to run to 2020. They would start kind of discussing uh, what to do after that now. Yeah. If you had a, a, a hard break, uh, they would have to start talking about it now with a, with a gap of, I don't know, 7 to 10 billion uh, euros a year um, uh, that no one would want to fill. Okay. You wrote this paper uh, for CR just before Article 50 uh, was triggered. Now, maybe a slightly unfair question, but now that 50 has been triggered, do you, is there, do you sense as a way to maybe broaden discussion beyond the, narrow, the narrowness of the, the budget liabilities of the UK, um, any sense of how the discussions of Article 50 will be, will be taking place? Well, the, 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 the format, I think. Well, I mean, I think that the Commission is still to be discussed, I guess, but the, I think the Commission would take a traditional trade-like approach to how this is done and, and the idea is maybe you'd have a, a week uh, of kind of formal talks uh, every month um, and then three weeks where you know one week you do debrief and uh, right. talk to member states and then two weeks of prep and arranging position papers doing the consulting the backroom work and then you'd have another kind of week so it comes down to uh, not many days of face-to-face -face talks between the kind of big players. Um, uh, and of that, the, the first section, uh, a lot of it is going to be spent on the kind of technical details of, of this bill. And there's, a, there's, plenty, there's plenty to discuss. And there isn't an obvious, clear, legal accounting answer to this, I mean, whatever you might be told by somebody, and this is going to be a political solution ultimately. And what they're doing is just kind of shaping the the building blocks uh, in a way to be able to 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 come up with something that will kind of stack up politically in the end. Well, as we know, the Article Fifty itself is a two-year time frame. Yeah, we all know that. But in effect, and, and if we go along with Mr. Barnier's interpretation, there has to be a deal in place by the autumn of next year. Point one, point two, it had a series of important elections this year, one out of the blue in the UK coming up on June the 8th, which we, people weren't expecting until a couple of weeks ago, uh, and therefore the effective negotiating time is uh, quite limited. At the same time, the li limited time available for discussion is going to be dominated by the, the budget bill discussions. I, I, for the first part, yes. Um, uh, now, does the election help in solving the bill problem? The, the UK election, yeah. Um, probably yes, uh, to a degree. Why? Um, the election moves the timeline to 2022 in terms of um, when Britain will make, be making a political judgment on, on the kind of final deal. And it means that um, rather than having to explain this in a 2020 election as was planned before, um, you have a bit more room to, to do a transition. Now a transition might also mean uh, budget payments, contributions, you could see out the MFF. And every year of participation 
in the budget that the UK would be part of uh, is a final, it reduces the, the final exit bill. So it makes the politics easier. Now, if you can sell the transition contributions, that is. But, mm. but it does, stretching it out uh, means that you're running through those obligations in a more kind of um, steady manner than if you were faced with it as a kind of upfront one-off bill. So we, I think most people are assuming, maybe unfairly, that, that Mrs May will be re-elected with an increased majority in about six weeks' time. Um, does, that, does that strengthen the hand and, and, and weaken the, the opposition at the same time, or, or, not, or will she actually use her new, her new mandate to, to uh, use more flexibility, maybe, because she won't be too concerned about, or less concerned, rather, about some anti-European pro-Brexit backbenchers in, in her own party? Um, it's, it's, it's hard to tell. I mean, she, as you're saying, I mean, she certainly has more time to play with, right. potentially. Um, I'm not sure anybody knows what Westminster is really willing to tolerate on the bill. Um, it's not really about the sums. Uh, we've seen, you know, before, you may remember the, 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 the fight over the budget surcharge of $2 billion that, that Cameron yeah, faced. Yeah, I mean, yeah. After that incident... Uh, support for EU membership in the UK dropped by about 10% in some polls. Right. It's, it's extraordinarily sensitive. It's hardwired into the Tory psyche uh, that fighting over the EU budget is an important thing to do, and quite right, and that you win because you've had a veto for 40-odd years on how the EU spends money and a rebate, and, uh, and all of that makes... Um, it's quite hard to predict how politics is going to respond to the idea of Britain paying uh, paying its way to a deal uh, with the EU. Um, you, you also have a difficult dynamic within the cabinet, possibly. I don't know if there'll be cabinet changes, but you know, Boris Johnson was standing in front of a lot of buses yeah. uh, with a lot of big promises about 350 million a week coming back. Uh, and you can already see that there's a difference in views of... Uh, what the UK owes and what the UK should be willing to pay for a trade deal. Right. Well, final question then. Um, jumping ahead um, to the end of Article 50 timeline, you say in your paper, and I quote, the risk of a breakdown in talks is high. Um, how pessimistic, sort of optimistic are you of some kind of sensible outcome? You have, I think, pre election, before, before the election was called, uh, there was more pessimism. Uh, about the prospects for the negotiations because you have this kind of uh, very uh, real kind of political judgment day approaching on 20, in 2020. Right. Uh, and it was harder to see how you navigated the politics and the kind of practical realities of this negotiation. Uh, the election makes it easier, I think. Um, uh, at the same time, I, I can't imagine, I hope... Uh, that something as important as this negotiation with the stakes it involves uh, I just can't imagine it falling apart over 60 billion alone I mean this is small change in the big scheme of things in the history of things they've been waiting 40 years to break off uh, uh, from the EU if you're a Brexiter um, uh, and and in terms of you know um, the, the importance of the relationship with Europe I mean this this really shouldn't be the defining issue um, but uh, it, it, it's there, uh, it's highly charged, and if the other parts of this negotiation go badly around the ECJ, in particular, right. court jurisdiction, who, who, um, who decides? Who decides? Who arbitrates? 
then I think the, the, the bill will take on more you know, significance politically and, and, and will resonate potentially with the public. Because it's pretty hard, ultimately, to explain uh, to people in the UK that um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, they're obliged to, to, to pay a bill to a club that they're leaving. Yeah, let's leave it there. Alex Barker, thank you very much for your time.